I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility podcast. We're at an exciting time in the mobility sector with new technology causing us to continually question the way we move both goods and people. My job is to talk to the people leading this revolution and to highlight the challenges and opportunities we face as we develop and implement safe, sustainable, and equitable mobility solutions. This podcast is brought to you by FEV. Check us out on LinkedIn or learn more at FEV.com. Today's guest is Greg Hunt. Greg is Senior Research Chemist for Strategic Research at the Lubrizol Corporation. This discussion is centered on the role of fluids for electric vehicle propulsion system, with a focus on the risks, causes, and mitigation of wire corrosion, which honestly might not sound very exciting if you haven't spent too much time in this field, but trust me, it's a critical topic as we look to improve efficiency and lifetime reliability for electric vehicles. Plus, Greg is undoubtedly a world expert on this topic and a great guy to talk to, so I hope you listen along. So please enjoy my conversation with Greg Hunt. Today I'm joined by Greg Hunt. Greg, thanks for coming on. Hello, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so to get us started, could you please give some background, kind of who are you and what are you working on? Sure. So I'm a senior scientist at Lubrizol, and um, I'm responsible for all of the R&D activities around corrosion. Um, so everything from our transportation business to our industrial business, all mm-hmm. of that. Um, but I'm also heavily involved in the electrification work that goes on with regards to, to fluids and that kind of thing. Um, so I've been at Lubrizol for 10 years. Okay. Um, prior to that, I was a PhD student, a chemistry PhD. Um, I've worked for um, Lubrizol for the last 10 years, like I said, and I've had some experience working for BP as well. So I, I know I'm, I'm well familiar with, uh, with Lubrizol and I'm, I'm guessing much of our, many of our listeners are, but for anyone who, who might not be um, maybe in the industry, could you give a bit of background kind of who, who Lubrizol is as a company? Yeah, absolutely. So Lubrizol has been around for a long time, actually. It's about 90 plus years. So founded in 1928 mm-hmm. and we're a speciality chemical company. Um, uh, last 10 years, we've been owned by Berkshire Hathaway. And kind of the the cool thing that I like to think about from Lubrizol's point of view is that you probably don't know this, but about more than 50% of uh, our products are touched every day by by consumers globally. So we're in every part of your day, really, from when you you move, how you take care of yourself, how you work and how you play. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have our Lubrizol science and, and products in soap, shampoos, personal care. Um, athletic wear, medicines, vitamins, coatings, yeah. uh, and and quite naturally the cars that you rely on to get you get you where you want to go, as well. And so, thinking of the uh, of the car or the mobility sector, could, could you speak a bit more about kind of what what specifically Lubrizol is providing the different uh, different systems or components? Yeah, absolutely. So one of our one of our missions essentially is to move cleaner. So as part of that focus, we're committed to enabling a more than 50% reduction in vehicle emissions by 2040. And we're really well known for our lubricants business. Um, so in, in terms of a lubricant, you know, we're thinking of greases, um, axle oils, engine oils, e-powertrain fluids, thermal management fluids, gasoline and diesel additives. So in general terms, we we provide about 20% of the lubricant that you as a consumer might might have in your vehicle or, or, or buy off the shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we're in we're in more than fifty percent of all vehicles worldwide, so we have some kind of product in there. Um, we also sell coatings and and materials as well for use in the vehicle, so things you might interact with in the cabin and and things like that as well. So really, a broad range of of uh, chemistries that go into vehicles. Cool. And now I want to, uh, I guess, shortly dig deeper into the, uh, the the lubricants area. But before we get there, can you give a bit more background, kind of how, what got you into the space or, or interested in uh, in the particular work that you're doing now? Yeah, sure. So my my involvement really was as a PhD student. So I was working on a project that was that was relevant, I guess, to the lubricant industry. So it was making waste commodity polymers or taking waste commodity. Uh, polymers and changing them into lubricant additives and that got me into into working with Lubrizol about 10 years ago and then from that space really it's evolved into understanding what's the real the real challenges for the future and and with that for lubricants one of the big one of the big areas I guess is really around corrosion and we can we can talk more in detail about that about that later but those challenges of how you protect a, an electrified system is quite different from from how it was with a conventional transmission for instance mm-hmm. um, just because of the operating conditions and some of the new materials of construction and it's it's finding nice little scientific insights um, to help make our customers and our customers customers products work more effectively that's that I find personally really interesting well, and when I think of a uh, a conventional or an internal combustion engine powered uh, vehicle, that I think maybe it's it's simple enough to to think about the role of the lubricant, right? In the the engine, you have these moving parts, uh, a piston going up and down uh, that needs some sort of of lubrication in there to make sure to reduce friction and prevent heat from building up in certain areas. Same same thing with the transmission, right? You have gears meshing, and theoretically a a lot of friction and heat could be, uh, or corrosion could, could build up there. Um, when we think about now electrified propulsion systems, can you, uh, can you speak a bit about where, what, I guess, where the key areas are, where the, uh, where fluids and, and lubricants are playing? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's really around the, the operating environment, I guess, and also the design possibilities so taking those two two things first um, when you start combining an electric motor in a transmission for instance you mentioned a transmission um, you bring about a new operating environment for that device so you might now have much higher voltages um, you'll have a really different temperature profile you've got a lot more copper a lot more electronics and a lot more structural plastics that previously the lubricant wouldn't wouldn't really have interacted with, would have interacted in, a, in quite a different way, to be honest. So if you think about a conventional vehicle and the kind of temperature profile it's exposed to, you might see it operating around 80 degrees C in the transmission, and it, it might get a little bit hotter, but you'll have a, a system that's, that's designed to cool the lubricant. In an electric vehicle, depending on your drive cycle, you might have really hot elements on the motor winding. So you might have temperature excursions for a short period of time to 180 degrees Celsius. Hmm. So that's much higher than you would experience in a traditional transmission. And those temperature excursions bring about new concerns really for corrosion. 
they also bring about new concerns for how that material that's coating the um, electric motor um, behaves and degrades over time and that interaction with the oil. So it brings about new possibilities and new failure mechanisms that previously you wouldn't have had had a concern with in a traditional transmission. Um, yeah, that, that, that's interesting. So I, I hadn't, uh, it, and, and this is, I know, a, uh, probably in, in some sense an ignorant uh, point of view, but I think, I mean, so typically you think of conventional um, powertrains generate a lot more heat o across the board, right? Generally, than an electric vehicle because the engine is, is such a uh, such a source of heat. But I, I hadn't thought so. So we're talking maybe a, a P two hybrid or, or something like that, right? Where you have yep. the electric motor integrated in transmission. And so, is it simply just now that you have the uh, that you're so much in closer proximity to this pr propulsion device? Um, like where in the electric motor is this heat coming from? So in in the electric motor, it's a function of the the voltage that's running through the the motor windings essentially. So say you accelerate hard up a hill, um, and you've got a four hundred volt motor in there, then the current that's going through that wire is going to be at its at its maximum output to give you as much propulsion as you as you require. Um, the consequence of that is you'll get a lot of heat generated. And that heat will need to be dissipated. And the lubricant's going to be either dripped onto there or it's going to be immersed. But that surface temperature that it's coming into contact with, that's where it's going to be really high. And depending on the environment it's in, so whether it's completely submersed, whether it's in the kind of vapor space, so you've got oil vapors just above the just above above that. Um, you get loads of different types of corrosion processes that occur. And, and that's really where you get the, the concerns from a corrosion point of view, um, is when you're, ex when you're subjecting that material to those rapid heating and cooling cycles, um, you, can, you can stress the material in quite a different way to if you just run a, a constant 80 degrees C, for instance. Mm -hmm. And that, that leads for failures in the coating system. So they're now becoming in contact with the oil. And depending on the formulation, so the the... the chemistry that's in that lubricant that will have a either an adverse or negative uh, impact on the on the motor winding or it, or it may actually be f be perfectly fine as well and it all depends on the chemistry and the conditions that occur there and then if you th also think about that's what's occurring locally on the electric motor mm -hmm. you have a lot more power electronics a lot more um, devices controlling the operation of that device than you would in in a traditional AT, uh, automatic transmission. And those materials also, the inverters, they might be linked, not directly, but certainly through the vapor space. So any of the, any of the volatile species that's produced from those high temperatures can find their way to come in contact with those materials. And it's mm -hmm. about making sure that they don't fail as well. So even though it's not in direct contact, um, some of the failures that you see, certainly in development tests, occur in those in those areas yeah that, that's that's interesting and i imagine maybe for uh people with more of a chemical background some of this stuff sounds uh more obviously or intuitive my my background's definitely on the mechanical side so it's uh yeah th these are not problems that I, I tend to think quite as much about uh i, I think there's several different places one want to go kind of from there but before we dive too deep can you speak to 
kind of, I guess first, what is, what's the impact if there is some type of corrosion problem in a, in a component or a system in the vehicle? So in an electrified vehicle, it can be quite extreme actually. So it all depends where you get the, where you get the failure. Um, there's some documented uh, uh, papers now highlighting some of these failure mechanisms. So you can, you can have corrosion products that form um, and they form essentially in the coating where the coatings failed. And then depending on the chemistry, um, you can form essentially little molecular networks which can conduct electricity. So that, that current that's flowing through the, the wire now has, now has an option, right? Uh, it, can, it can go through the wire as it was doing, or it can find this, this other path. And if that other path is conductive and, and, and essentially can get to the other place that the, that the electricity is traveling, then it's going to go down that, that lower conducting path. And the consequence of that is, depending on the conditions, that will also generate a lot of heat. So if you think of it in terms of like a simple wire, if you've got a thick wire and a thin wire, if you pass the same current down both, the thin wire will get a lot hotter. And that's just because you've got so much more electrons mm-hmm. um, trying, to, trying to go down that small surface area. And that leads to then quite catastrophic failure of that, of that device. So then we're talking, because I, I imagine some of the corrosion failures are kind of, yeah, you have efficiency losses or the, the device is going to wear out shorter. So rather than, I don't know, 10 years are running, you get eight years are running or something. But what we're talking about here seems like more of an uh, acute event. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And then, then once that's happened, there's, there's no going back from that. Your, your motor's junk, essentially. Um, hmm. You need to replace it. Um, it'll, it'll stop the vehicle. Whereas if you think back to conventional vehicles, like you say, the corrosion process that might be going on, you'd lead to those efficiency losses. So for instance, you might end up with a deposit that's forming, a corrosion deposit, and that's restricting flow in a solenoid, um, or it's giving you an intermittent signal that's, that's causing issues shifting. So you might have an issue there. You know, you might not be able to get to fifth gear, for instance, as easily. But you can still drive the vehicle. You'll just have a reduction in performance. Whereas the concern here now is really you, you will have fairly rapid vehicle failure. And, and although we can't, you know, can't share all of the information we'd like to, we do, we do know of examples where this has happened uh, in the world, whether the incorrect lubricant's been placed in one of these vehicles. Um, and that, that leads pretty rapidly to, to vehicle failure, essentially. Um, you know. Yeah, and I think you, you touched on an interesting point there that I want to explore a bit more. So choosing or designing the, the correct lubricant for a, a given application, can you talk to kind of what, what that process looks like? Yeah, so I think there's two different views. There's our internal Lubrizol view of how we'd develop something, and then there's kind of the the, the OEM industry view of how it how it gets developed. Okay. And I think it's fair to say that that nearly all of the new technology that's been developed is based on previous generation lubricants. So you'll you'll typically use a lubricant that you've had lying around or you've been familiar with. So you might start off with a conventional lubricant and then you'll put that into your new transmission uh, your new device and then you'll go from there essentially and see does this work how do i get around this um and i totally understand why you would do that it's the most natural thing in the world if you've got something around you're gonna mm-hmm. gonna make use of it the, the problem that that 
that brings though is that it limits your kind of expectations and what you can achieve so you might make design decisions based around the capabilities of that particular lubricant um, whereas one of the things we we offer um, off, or offer OEMs is the ability to say well actually what do you want to achieve do you want to make a, a smaller transmission more power dense transmission because we have some chemistry that could cope with that so you can really change your formulation approach and how you design a, a new electrified vehicle um, with with interacting in a, in a different way hmm. um, so it really changes about how you how you get to solve that 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 transmission design challenge really and, and so it seems like what you're i don't know if, if we uh make it more abstract the uh what you're talking about is kind of the approach of either kind of by analogy where you're you're starting with something and kind of making tweaks to it to make my mo uh, minor modifications or more the more first principles approach maybe that you guys would like to take if uh if you're given some type of challenge and say yeah how can we solve and, and optimize uh a fluid for this application yeah that's right yeah and what uh what makes and, and this i know a very simple question but what, what makes these different or these fluids different so it, it all depends on what they what they were originally intended to do so if you think about um a transmission i, I know we're talking a lot about transmissions today but it's it's relevant so if you think about a transmission, really the lubricant's there to make sure that that transmission can shift shift gear, mm -hmm. the gear surfaces can be protected and you can dissipate heat. And the corrosion, although does, you know, you want good corrosion performance, uh, it's not it's not super up there on terms of the the real design in tendency of that original fluid. So the chemistry choices that are made and, and used for those formulations, um, really never designed to be in close contact with copper, for instance. So you might have copper sulfides in there. And they're, they're fantastic for keeping metal parts um, you know, free from wear, um, making your transmission last an awfully long time from the mechanical point of view. But when they come into contact with some of the, some of the copper, um, they can be really quite reactive and they'll react with that species. So you'll end up with corrosion issues, deposit issues, and failure mechanisms from that point of view. Um, the other thing as well is when you change materials, um, you have interactions with the lubricant and how, how that lubricant interacts with that material surface. So you might find that certain additives actually are more permeable, or the oil's more permeable, so it can go through what you would consider to be a, a, a coating, for instance. So things like epoxy resins and things they're fantastic for keeping water away from the surface, not necessarily good for organic solvents and, and, and other, other things like that. So when you, when you make those design decisions, um, usually the lubricant's not at your forefront of your mind, um, but it is important to consider them. So let's, uh, let's talk a bit more specific to uh, corrosion prevention. So so we're talking, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but primarily copper corrosion, um, pick, pick an application, electric motor, I think is what we've been talking about a, a good amount. Uh, can you talk a bit about what are, uh, what, what are the main considerations for 
preventing um it, it sounds like yeah keeping something like copper sulfide or whatever you just uh you just said out of a lubricant's a a good idea but what, what else is there that are key considerations in terms of corrosion performance you yeah just, just yeah. strictly corrosion at this point yeah, so I think it, it, it all depends on your application and, and what's going on on that surface. So corrosion, um, I'll just be a bit more, you know, take a step back. Think of corrosion as essentially a pure metal doesn't want to be, it's, it's inherently unstable apart from gold or, or things like that. So it's really looking to, to get back to form an oxide. So as soon as there's oxygen around, you'll form copper oxide, for instance. And that's, that's typically how you see things in nature. You know, if you go back to iron, um, it's iron ore, so iron oxide that you'll extract out of the ground, mm -hmm. you'll smelt it, and you'll get the pure, pure iron, combine it with carbon, and you've got your steel, and that's what you'll use. And then you'll get rust when it's exposed to oxygen and water and salts again. Hmm. So these metals are really wanting to be back into their native oxide state. So depending on the, on the metal, and depending on the oxide, that oxide can be a barrier and quite effective barrier. So you think of aluminium, aluminium oxide, form aluminium oxide. That layer will stay on that surface for an awfully long time and there won't be any further corrosion underneath that layer. So you'll have nice pure aluminium metal underneath the aluminium oxide layer. Only if you scratch that surface will you then get um, you know, the, the oxide layer reforming and essentially it'll self-heal in some some degree. So you think of, you know, um, those uh, classic American trailers, mm. um, you know, aluminium trailers, they look fantastic from the like 1950s. They still look fantastic now. That's because that's essentially a barrier, barrier mechanism. Like an Airstream type uh, trailer. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, in a, when it's coated with an oil, it's quite a different environment. So usually it's got an absence of oxygen because the, the oil doesn't have, you know, it's not super well aerated. Um, and there's also other organic chemicals in there that can react with that oxide layer. So if you take those sulfurized olefins, for instance, and you've got a copper oxide that's exposed, you, you'll form copper sulfides pretty readily. And then that's not a barrier to prevent further corrosion. You'll start getting crevices and pits, and it'll propagate through the material, and you'll just generate more and more corrosion so from the lubricants point of view what we want it to do is is inhibit that process so we want to add corrosion inhibitors which will form a barrier on top of that metal oxide layer so to prevent the other more aggressive chemistry getting to the surface and causing further corrosion and that's that's really the holy grail of what we want to do is protect those surfaces get those molecules on there the problem that we have as chemists is we like to say, well, that's a corrosion inhibitor, that's an antioxidant, that's an um, anti-wear species. The chemicals don't know that that's what they are. They will just go to a surface um, and they will interact with that surface if they can. So you have this balancing act of getting everything in the formulation to coat the surfaces and stay where you want them to stay and stop the corrosion process occurring in the first place. And that's quite a tricky job because you also have then what we were talking about earlier with the different uh, drive cycle conditions. So you have different temperature cycling and that'll affect the molecules that come onto the surface, diffuse off the surface. And then you also have that, that kind of vapor space. 
And that's where you do have some of the oxygen, potentially some of the moisture around as well. And then that can be a, a totally different type of corrosion event again, because you'll have, you know, potentially chloride ions, all sorts of other potential species there that then can corrode that surface, that surface further. So when we're designing a, a fluid or a corrosion inhibitor for those, for those surfaces, we're thinking about all of these different operating environments and how we can balance um, the efficacy of certain chemistries that provide functions in other areas. So how do you balance something that gives good anti-wear performance with something that's not, gonna, not going to corrode the surface? And really one of the struggles that, that we have with that is getting a representative surface and having a representative way of measuring the corrosion that's occurring on those surfaces. So we've had to be a little bit um, thinking outside of the box and coming up with some, some new methods and new techniques to really probe that uh, and use that information essentially. And this is, and these are techniques for you during the development process and then also validation process for... Yeah, absolutely. So one of the... One of the techniques we've, we've developed recently is what we call the wire corrosion test. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is simply that, it's a wire corrosion test. So it's a, it's, a, it's a wire that is essentially the thickness of a human hair. So it's about 64 microns in diameter. And we take that wire and we put it in uh, contact with an oil, either in solution or in the vapor or both. And then we pass a very small current through that wire um, to essentially measure the resistance of that wire. And then as the uh, chemistry interacts with that, that metal surface, um, we can monitor that corrosion process by the change in resistance. And we can come up with an, essentially an effective corrosion rate in real time. And that's really valuable because then that gives you some really nice uh, data on which to base your judgments as to whether this chemistry is effective, whether that chemistry is effective, whether this solution is more corrosive or not. Um, In comparison to the other kind of industry techniques that we would have traditionally relied upon, like these strip type tests, um, which, you know, if if you look into the history of them, they weren't really intended as we use them today. I mean, it's perfectly fine what we're using them today for, but originally they were intended for for kind of measuring the amount of sulfur in crude oil. And then they've kind of evolved into being used in the, in the lubricant industry as a, as a kind of way to evaluate corrosion. Mm. Um, the other kind of, kind of drawback with that is it's a comparative process. So you'll get a strip surface and you'll look at that strip and you'll go, ah, that one looks slightly more corroded than this other strip, but then it looks different to this other strip. And so how you, how you compare corrosion using that is you typically have a chart and it'll be characterized by different, different colors of that, that strip. And then you rate it against that. And one of the challenges we ran into a few years ago was um, we had this interaction that produced a bright blue color on the strip. And there isn't a bright, bright blue color descriptor for what that means in terms of corrosion. So if you send this out to to different labs in the world and say, can you rate this for us, please? Yeah. Um, they'd come back with, with three or four different interpretations of whether that is actually corrosion or not. Um, so the, the wire corrosion test is really a way around that because you can get a you know, really simple experiment 
you can get a measure of the corrosion rate um, in, in quick time. So. Yeah, and, and so this uh, this wire corrosion test, which actually uh, for anyone who's who's listening might might be interested. Actually, we have the, the first one is currently set up in uh, at FEV's facility in, in Auburn Hills, Michigan. For for anyone who might have uh, an, an interest in learning more about this test or doing their own analysis on on their uh, on a fluid of some sort. Uh, but for so looking at resistance, so so how how accurate is so it, it seems like part of the benefit here is that rather than going from a visual scale, which is maybe there's a little bit of guesswork, there's discrete steps of looking at um, the the effects of corrosion. Theoretically, resistance you have perfect data and or not perfect data, but you you have clear data that can show where on a scale something is is resistance or what's the relation or correlation um, between resistance and uh, corrosion yeah so like any kind of analytical technique um, you can take an electrical signal and you can relate that back to some physical property Mm -hmm. so you know i'm not sure what what the audience is familiar with in terms of different types of of analytical techniques but if you take something like that's relevant in the in the world at the moment you're looking at measuring uh, you know the whether you've got coronavirus or not one of the one of the examples of that is the detector that's used uses an electrochemical impulse to determine whether that chemical is present or not and that's whether you've got a, a, a corrosion uh, sorry a whether you've got coronavirus or not mm-hmm. we're essentially using exactly the same idea in terms of determining the level of corrosion with the wire corrosion test. So when that, when that resistance value changes, we can relate that back to what the original um, wire's length and diameter was. And we know what that should be in terms of its resistance measurement. So you can calculate an amount of corrosion based on that resistance change. So you can say, you know, we've lost a micron worth of, of radius from that wire for instance, and you can relate it back to that physical measurement um, by calculation in that regard. Um, That means that once you've then got something that's a little bit more relevant for maybe maybe someone who's more familiar with with measuring corrosion, because typically you'd measure corrosion rates for, you know, a bridge or something like that in terms of millimeters per year or inches per year, you can do the same thing with this wire corrosion test. And the neat thing about it is once you start being able to present the data in that way, you then don't necessarily have to run the test for as long as you would run a strip test because you're getting that rate information from the corrosion process in real time. So in, in some specifications and, and, and some internal developments, you might run a strip test for a thousand hours, for instance, a high temperature. And when that temperature, when that test is finished, you'll have essentially one data point. You'll have that end data point. Um, You could do the same thing with the wire corrosion test, or you could run it for a shorter period of time and see what the corrosion rate's doing. And then you can compare that. So it means that um, you can actually reduce the amount of testing time you need to validate a material. And, And we've had some some great successes with this in terms of collaborators. We've just done a recent publication um, doing exactly that um, with another company who saw the value in, in using this technique. 
um, to bring down their their time to evaluate materials. What is, and maybe I missed this, but what is a typical time frame? So if it's not a thousand hours for the wire corrosion test, what, what do you think a typical time frame is? So we, based on our historic data, we've got it down to about three days, so 72 hours. Hmm. And we found that in, in something like 99, 98 to 99% of, of developments, you can see after 72 hours, what you would get after a thousand hours. So yes, you can, there's going to be that odd case that's, that's a bit different. Um, but in most cases, after 72 hours, you've got a really good link with that, that kind of corrosion performance that's occurring. And so if I understand correctly, basically anyone who is either formulating or applying or utilizing some of these uh, lubricants, particularly for electrified applications, would uh, would find this interesting is that about right absolutely yes I, th- I think you find it very interesting and and harking back to what we were talking about earlier where we were saying the temperature profile brings about differences in corrosion rates mm-hmm. um that the most recent paper we've we've just published um talks about how essentially to do the kind of measurements that you would want to look at evaluating multiple different temperatures from 50 to say 170 degrees c would take you about two years in terms of coupon testing, whereas we could do it in a couple of weeks using the wire corrosion test, just because it runs for a much shorter period of time. You can run at different temperatures. And then when you run at different temperatures, you can explore essentially the temperature impact on on the corrosion process. So for instance, um, depending on the temperature that you're looking at, you may see differences in corrosion. And that's one of the really interesting observations we've made with the wire corrosion test. And you'll see that same thing with a strip test. It's just much, much harder for you to get that data and work out that that kind of process that's going on. And that's okay. all related back to the chemistry. So very, very cool. It's it's interesting and yeah, like I said, not not something that I uh, necessarily am exposed to as much in my <laughs> my everyday thought processes. Um, but yeah, when, when, when you dive into the, the, the fluids and the, and the impact there, it, it is very interesting, uh, chemical situation taking place. Um, I want, I want to, uh, kind of transition to what, what I call a rapid fire section real quick before getting there. Just is there anything, anything we missed or anything else we want to, uh, you want to mention about corrosion or any of these topics that we've covered? Um, I'm trying to think, is there anything I've missed? I think the key thing is the, the wire corrosion test is really useful in terms of monitoring corrosion processes, um, giving you some really good data and insights into, into corrosion rates. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you some insight into the formation of the corrosion products, so these corrosion deposits. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also work we're doing there looking at how these corrosion deposits um, are relevant for the industry because you can have a lower corrosion rate, but you can also form conducting layer deposits and corrosion deposits that cause issues. Um, so it's all it's all work in progress as well. So there's, there's things still to come. Gotcha. Yeah, very exciting. So, like I mentioned, would like to uh, quickly transition to a couple of these rapid fire questions, and so these are, are generally more so about kind of you as a person rather than uh, specifically your, your work and and. Uh, what you're doing, but I mean, not necessarily directly different, but so sure. the first question, um, 
favorite book or books of yours? So is there anything in particular that you've read that has uh, had an, an impact on you? Yeah, I think um, I like uh, Bill Bryson as an author. So I've read quite a few of his his uh, his books. So, you know, Notes from a Notes from a Big Country, so about the US. Hmm. Um, Notes from a Small Island about the UK is quite an insightful author. Um, he's also done some great little general science books. So A Brief History of Nearly Everything, recommend that. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's the one that springs to mind. Cool. I, I have not read any of those, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll add that to my list to check out. How about... Uh, a hobby of yours so when you're not not working what's something that you uh, typically like to do oh that's a great question so with two ch- small children time for hobbies has dramatically dropped off so i've had to come up with uh with ways of, of combining the two really and i suppose the most recent one has been uh tinkering with uh the, the raspberry pi and the kind mm-hmm. of electronics and and things you can make so I made yeah. a little uh remote control interacting car a little little one out of you know using a cardboard frame and things and that's been fascinating yeah um, how uh, how old are the kids so mine are uh, seven and five so they're at that that age where yes they find it interesting but but daddy's really got to do all of the all of the hard work for them <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that sounds fun yeah those things are uh yeah it's a surprising amount of things that you can get out of a raspberry pi oh yeah and then uh, maybe the, the last of these, so question about a, a personal strength of yours. So, so what is something that you think, um, I don't know, in, in your personality or your work that you do particularly well or, uh, yeah, that, that's yeah, allowed you to have some that's, success? That's a good, good point. I think, I think I'm quite good at, or I hope I'm quite good at, seeing the, both the big picture and the detail hmm. across a, a number of different areas. So I can see like the, the focus on the, the technical side but also how does this fit in with, you know, the, the goals of the organization, the industry, the, the future trends and things. So, so that's probably one of my strengths. Is that a, uh, is that something that is inherent or came over time? Um, I think I've always been interested in, in that kind of strategy. So there's something about my personality that likes the kind of strategy of, of the big picture and the detail and how it all fits together. I think that comes from being a scientist, right? You want to be interested in, in the detail and minutiae of things yeah but also there's that element of of how it all fits together yeah and i think uh from a scientist or phd perspective maybe the the big picture parts the the rarer aspect of being able to also take the step back and understand how what you're doing plays in the world yeah cool so greg this has been uh been very interesting a lot, a lot of fun talking and, and diving into an area that i haven't covered in too much uh detail so far so I guess one, one take around away as, as you had mentioned. So if anyone is interested in, uh, in learning more about this corrosion prevention or partic- particularly the wire corrosion test, um, yeah, you can, you can reach out to me directly or also Greg will have your, uh, your contact information as well. Um, yeah, besides that, um, I, I can link to your LinkedIn profile, Lubrizol's page and LinkedIn profile. Um, Anything else that you want to point people to or uh, uh, closing thoughts that you want to leave us with? No, I think that's good, Brandon. I think that's, you, you've summed it up really nicely there. I think that's a great summary. Perfect. Thank well, you. Yeah, thanks again. Really appreciate you uh, coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. 
The Future Mobility Podcast is brought to you by FEV. For more than 40 years, FEV has been a global leader in the development of mobility solutions for the transportation industry. With a team of experts passionate about innovation through the design, development, integration, and validation of turnkey vehicle and propulsion system technologies, FEV is your partner for the development of future mobility solutions. I'm your host, Brandon Bartnick. If you want to learn more or get in contact to share feedback or questions, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn at Brandon Bartnick. Thanks for listening.